Today we'll start the um, church history sequence. Now we're going to be starting with Ignatius of Antioch, who was a bishop of Antioch, uh, which is kind of over in what is now on the coast of southern Turkey, but at, at the time was the capital of Syria. He was a bishop at the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century, shortly after the time of the Apostle John. There's some early traditions that connect that consider him to be a disciple of uh, St. John. There is also a later tradition that connects him as the with the child that Christ referred to as uh, you have to be like children in, in the gospel. The written evidence that we have for him are a group of letters that he wrote when he was being taken on his way to martyrdom in Rome. <clears throat> he was transported up through what is now western Turkey. <clears throat> this this is the Aegean Sea and this is uh, Turkey uh, going off this way. <clears throat> and visited uh, the city of Smyrna here, and then later Troas before taking off. And while in these two cities, he wrote some seven letters that we have, and that's one of our earliest uh, groups of Christian writings outside of the New Testament, are the seven letters of Ignatius. And I, so I'm starting with that partly just chronologically, but one of the points I want to make is that in... Uh, Ignatius's letters, we see the continuity between New Testament history and uh, patristic history, the history of the, our, the church fathers, that there's a, there's not a big break between the patristic church and the New Testament church, but they're the same church. And these letters are particularly show that because they are written to churches that are very much a part of the New Testament. If we think about the journeys of the Apostle Paul up through uh, Galatia in southern Turkey, and then later he spent some time in Ephesus. He has wrote a letter to the Ephesians, uh, a famous letter to the Galatians. The city of Colossae, right over here, wrote a letter to the Colossians. <clears throat> in, the, in later uh, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, we find that there are in the first part of Revelation there are letters written to the churches. And that, uh, that the churches are Ephesus, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, uh, Thyatira, Pergamum, and I'm not sure if Smyrna, I don't think Smyrna's in there, but those are um, <coughs> all in this same area that that uh, St. Ignatius will be traveling through. Yeah. But uh, that, of course, this is long before there are any Turks <laughs> around, so this is, uh, at that time, they would call it uh, Asia Minor or Anatolia would be the name of this landmass in the province of Asia. Roman Asia actually was this area around uh, where where they all where the letters take place. <clears throat> I just um, kind of want to give you some some books uh, for your study. If you uh, in general the the study of early church history relies on the church history of Eusebius, which was written in the 300s, uh, the time of Constantine. He records the persecutions of Diocletian, which he witnessed, but also he 
was a scholar and he collected together all the sources he could find on early Christian history, including many lost writings. And so he gives us uh, the kind of continuation of the book of Acts up to the time of Constantine. And he, so he is actually, the, in some ways, almost the only source for much of our early history. Of course, we have, fortunately, the writings of the fathers uh, that he refers to in some cases are preserved also, such as Ignatius. So we're able to corroborate him through the existing writings. But if you are interested in just having a history book to read, uh, this is the source. That So if you're reading, if you will go out and buy uh, some scholars' uh, book on, on uh, the early church, I mean, essentially everyone has to come back to Eusebius because that's what there is. So if you could, you might as well just read the original. And the um, other helpful thing is this series called the Anti-Nicene Fathers. Uh, it doesn't always look like this. That was an old copy, but uh, if you, this is the post-Nicene Fathers here. This with the blue. This is the Erdman's edition. Now there's different editions, but <coughs> but there's a one with with red uh, labels, and that's the the anti-Nicene. Uh, not meaning that they're against Nicaea, but that they're before A N T E. And a lot of uh, these are particularly good value because they just contain tons of stuff, and they're cheap. You can, especially vitamin set, you can get a good price. <coughs> the volume one contains the letters of Ignatius along with a whole bunch else, uh, works of Irenaeus, Justin, and uh, other apostolic, or what they call apostolic fathers, the earliest church fathers. <coughs> There's also a copy, um, well, Ignatius can be found in, in many other uh, books that are uh, called translations of the, either the apostolic fathers or Penguin calls it the early Christian writings. And this, it's, this collection of early Christian writings are, are often translated and published in, in various formats, and, and you probably have a few of them. But this is the Loeb Library that, uh, for those who know Greek and want to translate, they have the uh, Greek text on one side and the English text on the other. So that's the, uh, the best trans, well, I shouldn't say that. I, I, I like the translation that's in the Nicene Fathers. I, I haven't looked at everybody's, so I, I'd be hasty to say it's the best, but, that's, but I, I think it's a good one. Another um, source for today's uh, class, because the early fathers were mostly engaged in, in battles against some people called the Gnostics, um, this, there's a, a really good source on Gnostic uh, teachings is a collection made by St. Epiphanius, uh, a bishop from Cyprus in the... Uh, I think in the 400, the time of uh, John Chrysostom is when he made this. And this is called the Pan-Arian, which means the all heresies. So he was attempting to collect every possible heresy in here. But uh, because but it really uh, has a lot of material on the early heresies, which are the ones we're dealing with right now for this uh, period. And he kind of collects a lot of, of their teachings, that of, of writings that don't exist anymore. So... It's a, it's a very handy textbook uh, to know what these people were saying. And this will come in handy here because the um, Gnosticism, it, it kind of is the major opponent of the church for the first 200 years. 
It's also the major error that Ignatius is writing about and kind of looking, Ignatius kind of lets us into two worlds, the New Testament world, and it helps us to see what it is that the New Testament writers are writing about because he's writing at the same places about um, the, really the same problems. And so it, it helps us, it gives us a context for the New Testament authors to understand what the New Testament is about, which, which the church fathers often do. I mean, we see the church fathers as, uh, and the church itself as the way to interpret the scriptures rather than trying to uh, take them in isolation from that context and interpret them according to, let's say, 20th century ideas. The other uh, side of it is, is these kind of Gnostic writings and the writings of the of the conflict that, are, that uh, were collected by the early church after Ignatius. In a way, that those help us to understand what it is Ignatius is writing about because um, since the same people, the same controversies were going on for 200 years, people had a lot to say about them, and we can we can use that information to amplify our understanding of Ignatius as just and then as we can then take the whole thing and, and amplify our understanding of the New Testament. So that's what I, I uh, again want to give this sort of sense of continuity and the way that they're not separate studies. You know, that we often, uh, well, particularly, I think, in a Protestant world, you know, the biblical studies is a very severely demarcated uh, field discipline that you only, you know, you look at the text and that's it. Uh, maybe you look at dictionaries, too, to, you know, compare meanings or something. And then, you know, church fathers and history is a separate thing. But really, they're all part of the same life of the church. And so, uh, they, you know, we should look at it as a whole. And, and the church, that's... Uh, sort of spiritually how we look at it. <clears throat> so in our studies, we should look at it that way also as well. Okay, the the letters, the first, uh, well, I should tell you that there are the seven letters that we have. There's also a few uh, uh, what are thought to be fake letters of, of Ignatius. And, and this is where um, the this book doesn't just have the seven it also it also gives you the ones that are not there to the Virgin Mary and to Apostle John and they're generally considered to be not authentic there's also a uh, account of the martyrdom of Ignatius in here that's called that's generally called the Antiochian version there's a, a later Roman version that's not thought to be as reliable this one is a pretty uh, straightforward account of his martyrdom and it talks about how the Emperor Trajan came to Antioch on his way to attack uh, Persia, and uh, Ignatius came forward to confront him and refused to sacrifice to the pagan gods. And so then Trajan ordered him to be taken off to Rome to be uh, killed there by wild beasts. So <clears throat> this, um, and, he, and during that dialogue with the Emperor Trajan, he said, "Well." How can I, who have God dwelling inside of me, you know, worship, uh, you know, false false gods or idols? And that's uh, why he's known as uh, Ignatius, the God-bearer, because uh, the emperor referred to him by that name. But this, uh, you can read it in there. There's also, Ignatius, in Ignatian uh, studies, there's this 
there are two different texts of Ignatius' letters. One is the called the short letters, and the other is the long letters. The short ones are generally considered the more authentic, and that's what's in your Loeb edition. But the uh, Nicene Fathers provides you with the long ones at the same time, side by side, so you can actually get to read both. And that's otherwise would be pretty tough to do, I think. Yes. Do you have any knowledge about how the longer uh, versions uh, were created? Well, it's a thing. The the um, the extra the the fake epistles are generally thought to be from the fourth century, and if they're thought to be written by the same person who or group of people who did the apostolic constitutions, uh, the Long versions of the epistles, of the uh, genuine epistles, are sometimes thought that perhaps that's from the same school. The letters of Ignatius, uh, about three of them are very substantial in content. Uh, the letter to the Smyrnans is the one that deals particularly, uh, Smyrna here, but particularly with the Gnostics explicitly. The uh, letter to the Magnesians will deal with the Judaizing question and the letter to the Ephesians with church order, but the others are kind of much more uh, only make allusions to those problems. They don't; they're not so so explicit. When you go to the long recensions, the other letters become more explicit. In fact, uh, what happens is the particularly letter to the Trollians. I didn't put Trollian there, but the, they, uh, you know, is, takes up a lot more of the anti-Gnostic theme. So there's not, it's not anything really different in the long recension, but I would say it's, it's more clear. There's, there's just more, more of the same kind of content, anti-Gnostic content particularly in them. So, um, I don't know, in, in reading the, the, uh, short letters, I guess I've, I have felt that there's sometimes, uh, obscurity in the Greek, and I wondered whether there was a, some editing there, and whether the, I don't know. You know, it's, it's possible that the late, is, the longer ones are interpolated, or what they mean, they, somebody added extra. But I, uh, I find them sometimes they're uh, more clear. You know, they they add some clarity. They, for instance, name names that the sh- that the short recension doesn't doesn't do. Okay, the um, the two major issues that the writings of Ignatius deal with are the uh, question of the Judaizing. And the question of Gnosticism. I'll just mention um, the Judaizing part first because that's very familiar to you from the New Testament. That's what uh, St. Paul had to deal with. You see it in the book of Acts. The, the Council of Jerusalem was dealing with that. How much of the Old Testament uh, sorry, uh, law you know, was still, did you have to be Jewish in order to become a Christian? And his letter to the Galatians especially deals with that, saying that that uh, salvation is by faith in Christ and not and so that we shouldn't be putting our reliance on the works of the law and then because what was happening is that um, pagan converts to Christianity were then being encouraged to become circumcised as Jews in order to be Christians and and he rejected that <clears throat> this uh, issue is apparently still going on well one of the interesting things we know about uh, in Ephesus uh, where St. John was living up until about 95, 96 AD. Uh, well, he, of course, he goes to Patmos, but sort of 
with there was a, a heretic named Carenthus who lived in, uh, in Ephesus, and he <coughs> he went. Uh, John was in the public baths, and Carenthus comes in, and John says, "Oh, we need to get out of here because the bath might fall down because he's here." <coughs> so, but he was a, an interesting combination of the two. Um, he's often classed with the Gnostics, but he also was a uh, a Judaizer believing that you had to follow the laws of the Old Testament. So at least uh, by the time of the Apostle John, that was a, a major teacher there who was teaching that. And uh, his letter to the Magnesians, which is just south of Ephesus, focuses on that question of of and he's he follows what Saint Paul says essentially that um, we don't where you know Christianity means that uh, we're no longer uh, following, having to follow the Jewish laws, and second, that uh, that that, Judea, that Judaism is is uh, no longer a separate thing. That the Church is the new Israel, and so that that being uh, that being a Christian is the fulfillment of Judaism. You don't have to kind of uh, have a separate Jewish practices as well. Yes. How, how long did uh, the idea of Judaism last? Well, something it seems to be around now uh, with some of the um, the Jewish uh, Christian groups, you know, wanting to see uh, Jewish Christianity as something very separate from non-Jewish Christianity. Whereas, uh, and you know, the reinstitution of you know having a separate Passover service rather than just an Easter, you know, because Pascha is Pascha is Pesach, it's Passover. I mean, we, perhaps if we said Passover, it would be clearer, you know. When we sang those songs, O Holy Passover, uh, Passover of the Lord. It's that, so we're celebrating, you know, the, we, at the church, we are celebrating Passover, we're celebrating, um, uh, Shavuot, the giving of the law on Pente- Pentecost, essentially. Uh, the, so the, this kind of attempt to, uh, to say, well, no, you have to reintroduce the Jewish services alongside of the Christianized Jewish services. <laughs> Um, you know, is, is part of the same error. But of course, it's a modern thing. I think that, uh, that New Testament Judaism, well, it went into the second century. There was the, um, there was a group called the Nazareans in uh, Jordan, in the what's now Jordan, that were following, continuing to follow Jewish laws. They essentially just were the, uh, they were probably Judaizing Christians from Judah that fled the Roman uh, invasion. And lived over there for a while. Uh, there was a, another group called the Ebionites who were not only Judaizers, but they denied the divinity of Christ. They were believing that he was a prophet. So that's, uh, that was a separate group in to the second century. But by, I think by the end of the second century, you don't really see much of that. Yes? I think um, modern Judaizing is like, I think it's mainly like partially the Yes, I think it it comes probably because uh, in Protestantism, most people aren't aware of any uh, liturgical tradition or continuity with the New Testament Church. So I don't think that Protestant Christians imagine when they decide to celebrate Passover that they're celebrating the same feast twice. Because to them, it's just they don't see, they probably don't see the connection with of uh, Pascha with with Passover. Yeah. Um, but it, it's not wrong to 
follow the laws, right? Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you want to follow something, uh, so, that's fine. It's just that, I mean, and, and certainly like the Ten Commandments and that we would say, but it's the um, the ritual laws that we don't re- require them. And that's if you're saying that you need to follow these in order to be saved, well, then that would be an error. Didn't yeah. um, a lot of the Jews and Saint Christian guys that, uh, during Apostle time didn't they still follow the laws or did they stop following the laws? Well, this was the dispute between Peter and Paul, because Peter initially separated himself in Antioch from the Gentile converts because of the Jews complaining about him because they weren't supposed to eat with the Gentiles. But then Paul uh, said, well, you're not supposed to do that because in Christ we're all united. You know, we're all one people. You can't uh, separate from the Gentile Christians because because we're all the new Israel. So Peter actually uh, followed Paul's uh, correction on that so this <clears throat> there was uh, I guess so that that would have been the uh, you know perhaps in some things they may have continued to, uh, to follow some Jewish customs or, or, or some laws but <clears throat> but uh, generally you'd see a probably a movement away from that as, as the church well the church was considered became one church so it wasn't just separate um uh, Jewish Christian communities, they were part of the whole thing, so it's probably a single practice for everybody. Yes, uh, Chris? I, you sort of made the distinction, but I think it's real helpful to make the distinction very clear between the moral law mm-hmm. and the Jewish um, ritualistic law. Yes. Where I think Irenaeus said, Irenaeus said that uh, Christ didn't come to use the word abrogate, yeah. nullify, set aside the moral law in mm-hmm. order to where Jesus said um, if you look at a woman in your heart and lust after mm-hmm. you adult, adultery you, right. you know if you hate somebody in your heart you've murdered them, mm-hmm. that Christ didn't nullify the moral law but instead fulfilled it by bringing it into our hearts and that's right fulfill it even at a, a stricter yeah. uh, in a through love yeah. but the, the ritualistic law yeah. is what is yeah. Right, so we don't have uh, animal sacrifices and things like that anymore. It's just our crisis fulfillment of the sacrifices. Yes? Um, maybe a related question to what Chris said was, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, Protestants tend to read Romans and Galatians in a way that makes justification by faith uh, address not Judaizing specifically, but, but you know, be a kind of a theoretical thing that's dealing with justification by faith alone and imputation. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the theories that developed later. Um, do you see any evidence for, you know, like faith alone and stuff or any of the distinctive kind of Protestant doctrine, scripture alone, faith alone, in any of these very early writings? Um, um. Not that I can think of offhand, no, I, because that's not was first of all, that just wasn't the issue that they were facing. I mean, with the Judaizing, uh, you would think it could be as simpler, but I mean, they are saying that yeah, we have salvation by faith rather than by the by right. the, the works of the law, that's just as Paul was. Well, but, one of the things I've noticed when I when I've read some some uh, modern commentators on on like Ignatius and those early writings is that they because they don't use phrases like, you know, exactly, well, let me put it this way, since they emphasize works 
mm-hmm. as well as faith. Yeah. Uh, that they will, uh, you know, say that, that Ignatius and Polycarp and these guys are already falling away from, you know, the New Testament doctrines and, and yeah. you, know, you know, they're already going downhill and, and, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, uh, I'd say they're just facing different issues. But, you know, and, and you see that, I mean, within the New Testament, obviously the Epistle of James and, you know, some of the other, and, and even in Paul, I mean, there's, there's a emphasis on, uh, uh, living a holy life as part of that as well. So it's just we're not, you know, we tend to fixate on the, or, or Protestants, let's say Protestant, uh, would fixate on the parts that were, you know, against Judaizing in order to develop a particular theory. But uh, if you look at the Testament, you know, that's, a, that's very balanced in the Testament. There's, there's faith, but there's also, uh, you know, part of life. The, uh, if there's anything else on nothing else on Judaism, I think I'll get to the other, which is actually the part that he writes most about is the uh, Gnostics. He doesn't call them Gnostics, but uh, <coughs> Gnosticism is what becomes the name of it, and I'll, I'll use that just to simplify things for later. It's the basically dualism, which it's uh, we're coming from the religion of Persia. Dualism is around. Uh, long before Ignatius and the New Testament get here, what happens is that you have the, these uh, teachers of dualism who become interested in uh, in Judaism and later Christianity, and they so people kind of like Corinthus perhaps, but then um, there's someone in the New Testament, which in the New Testament you don't really hear anything about Gnosticism connected with this person, but the church tradition is. Uh, Unanimous, I would say, in, in uh, making him as a, so- a major source of Christian Gnosticism, uh, to, if we can use a word, but let's say Gnosticism, which uh, works w- within the Christian framework, and that is Simon Magus. In the New Testament, he's the person who uh, wants to buy the grace of, of ordination, and so he, uh, you know, his, his name Simony is refers to people who who want to buy sacraments. Uh, but in uh, pretty much all early Christian writings, he's also seen as the first um, Christian uh, Gnostic, the person who tries to connect this dualistic teaching with Christianity. <coughs> he And then he's followed by uh, someone named Menander. The, Simon was, was, was a Samaritan, uh, from the northern part of Israel, and his disciple Menander was also. And they, at least Menander, ends up in Antioch, which is where uh, Ignatius lived, where he's the bishop. And Menander there uh, had a school where he had two uh, famous disciples. One was Saturnilus, who stayed in Antioch, and then uh, another one was probably the more famous, was Basilides, who later goes down to Alexandria and becomes the founder of, of Gnosticism there. Oh, now, okay. in the long recension, the references to uh, Simon, Menander, and Basilides are frequent. And at first you would think, well, why talk about Basilides, who's down in Alexandria? But he was originally a student up here. So he 
it would be possible. I mean, in fact, that, that he doesn't really mention Saturnalis. He mentions, all, and you, you normally would connect Basilides with another place, but he, because uh, that's where he kind of made his reputation. But the, but uh, it wouldn't be. It would. It perhaps would be likely that he's reflecting a time when Basilides was still living there. All of them teach very similar doctrines, which are that the kind of the, the origin, the central premise is that the material world is evil and the spiritual world is good. And this uh, this premise, you know, can sound good. I mean, in fact, it sounds like what we hear sometimes, you know, in uh, sermons and things uh, that, uh, you know, the world is bad and the spirit is good. And it's... Uh, even some of our, you know, ascetical practices are similar to what <clears throat> some of the followings of, of teachings of the uh, Gnostics, later Gnostics, were in a way they could say created a type of monasticism. <clears throat> there was uh, no marriage, no eating meat. Um, this, uh, you know, seems like, and and then kind of you know that well this sort of just talking about the world, you know, the world is bad, the body is bad, you know. Um, it all sort of sounds like, potentially like Christian aesthetical things, but but there's actually a, a tremendous difference between the two. And this is a difference that uh, was actually kind of sort of fought out, you know, in, in uh, later, you know, in the uh, monastic circle sometimes because the Manichaeans go up into time, Saint Augustine was originally a Manichae in the uh, 400s. So that late, well, he was in the late 300s, but he converted. He can, you know, when he was a Manichae. But uh, but the the difference is that in the Christian worldview, we see the material world as created by God, so that it is inherently good. We see that it's perverted by human the human fall. <clears throat> but that these things are still good things. We, when we don't uh, get married, let's say we become a monk or we don't eat meat or fasting, <clears throat> it's not because we think those things are evil, but it's because we are giving up good things for a spiritual benefit. And this is what asceticism is. Asceticism is the word struggle. And so we're undertaking a voluntary struggle <clears throat> and that struggle is bec- is because that we're acknowledging the goodness of them, but we are putting that aside for a particular purpose or a particular season. Um, in, whereas in, in the Gnostic world, those things are just simply, they're bad. Now, in one way, you could say, well, this could help make the Gnostics, you know, very good monks and, you know, really uh, super ascetics because they think these things are, you know, that are are really evil. In fact, in early Gnosticism anyway, it had exactly the opposite effect. Because the material world was was evil, it was um, essentially meaningless. And so you had, combined with some other parts of their mythology, uh, the the kind of defining characteristic of Gnostics in the Book of Revelation, uh, where they're called the Nicolaitans and also the Jezebel in there, and then later in uh, Ignatius, and, and other early Christian writers, so when they talk, what is Gnosticism? It's synonymous, not with asceticism, but immorality. 
Because what is it that's bad about marriage? Children. Producing children is bad because you're entrapping spirit into the material world. So, but the, uh, what you do in the material world otherwise is irrelevant. So, therefore, um, it, it opened the door to, I mean, uh, and actually, I guess, initially, you know, part of the whole, the, the whole, uh, theory of Gnosticism was, to, was produced a great deal of immorality as ritualistic immorality, which refers to, I mean, Jezebel, uh, in the Revelation kind of, kind of hints at that. It become it's, uh, referred to by Ignatius, it's developed much more fully in later Christian writers who, especially Epiphanius, uh, will tell you, tell you lots about, uh, everything that they're doing. So, um, because I guess he was, uh, he was a monk at one point and, and he had, uh, he had to deal with Gnostics personally, so he, he, uh, very, uh, enthusiastic in his, uh, denunciations of them. The, um, okay, so that on the one side, this kind of takes the distinction between Ignatius is giving us the uh, defense of the Christian affirmation of creation, uh, affirmation of married life, and the material world that a kind, a kind of away from a rejection. And then part of this affirmation is that we now have, um, that we have to live a moral life because morality is the use of the material world in a way that is pleasing to God. So the value of the material world means that we have to be careful how we live in it and live in it in a, in a, a, a proper way. And so it, that's, it, it becomes the field of our spiritual struggle then, rather than just as something that we reject. Yeah. Uh, but <coughs> a good God and an evil God? Well, basically two principles, the, the spiritual principle and the material principle. And <coughs> there does evolve that a little bit because when this is, okay, this is the first aspect is how does this relate to the world? Okay, now how does it relate to theology? Well, in the Old Testament, you know, who is who is the God of the Old Testament? Well, if you look at Genesis, preeminently the, the Genesis God of the Old Testament is the person who creates everything. So he's creating all these fish and trees and, and uh, things like that. Well, in Gnostic uh, thinking, that means, well, who is he then? Well, he's the, he's the devil. You know, he's the evil one who is making this material world. He's the enemy of the good God. And so they saw Christ becomes identified as the son of the good God who is unknowable, who's pure spirit and... Um, who is coming into the world to destroy the work of the evil God, the Old Testament. So, in this case, the conflict between Jews and Christians becomes kind of caught up into their metaphysics as that Christianity is the, is the destruction of Judaism. Um, and perhaps, you know, there might have been some people in the church who, who might have felt that way, but this is something totally rejected by the church. I mean, obviously liturgically, but I mean, when you pick up our Bible, there's a, two parts to it, Old Testament and the New Testament. We, we keep the Old Testament and, uh, our New Testament writers are always quoting the Old Testament and our church services are to a certain extent based on Old Testament feasts as well. Yes. 
Because, <laughs> okay, that's the first thing is how do you relate to the Old Testament? The second thing is, well, what about Christ then? If the, Christ is the son of the spirit God uh, and matter is evil, well, how? what about the incarnation? Well, that there is no incarnation. That Christ is just a spirit who appears human, but he's, there's nothing physical about him. There's no no birth. That's why uh, Marcion later accepted the Gospel of Luke without the uh, nativity part, because the nativity would be the he wouldn't accept that. <clears throat> there's no birth. There's no um, you know all his life on earth was just a kind of a show. And then obviously when you get to the crucifixion, there's no there's no crucifixion either. And I'll read you a little something from. One of the Gnostics, I think I can find it. Um, okay, here. This is from Basilides, from Epiphanius. Um, he says that it was not Jesus who suffered, but Simon of Cyrene, because when the Lord was being expelled from Jerusalem, they forced one Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. He says that while Simon was carrying the cross, he transformed him into his own form and himself into Simon. And in place of himself, he handed over Simon to be crucified. While Simon was being crucified, Jesus stood facing him, but invisible, laughing at those who crucified Simon. But he himself ascended to the heavenly places, having given over Simon to be fixed to the cross, while he went up to heaven without suffering. So it was Simon who was crucified and not Jesus. Well, one of the major themes in Ignatius' letter, and uh, first epistle of John, by the way, uh, is the reality of the that Christ is not an appearance, that he's the real flesh and blood, and you, have, you know, that's the, who is the Antichrist in First John? Those who don't say that Christ has come in the flesh. And that's why he's saying it, because he's living right here in Ephesus, where all this is happening, and he's, he's saying this is the Antichrist, and then in the, the letter to the Smyrna's, but it's all over Ignatius, is this uh, affirmation, you know, that you have to believe in the actual physical incarnation. Um, I'll just read a couple of things. Um, For they alienate Christ from the Father and the law from Christ. It's like the Old Testament. They also calumniate his being born of the Virgin. They are ashamed of his cross and they deny his passion. They do not believe his resurrection. They introduce God as a being unknown. He truly suffered and truly raised himself, not as certain unbelievers maintain that he only seemed to suffer, as they themselves only seemed to be Christians. For I know that after the resurrection he was still possessed of the flesh, and I believe that he is so now. In another place, he was crucified in reality and not in appearance, not in imagination, not in deceit. He really died and was buried and rose from the dead. Because, of course, then the resurrection also. There's no physical body, there's no death, and no resurrection. So this, uh, that, that's the other major difference <laughs> between Gnosticism and Christianity, is the belief in uh, the actual... Uh, death and resurrection of Christ, which is central to our whole concept of salvation, but obviously Gnostics believed in, in an intellectual salvation, basically by knowing secret knowledge you could escape this material world, whereas we're saying it's through Christ's death, death to sin in this world, that we can rise to a resurrected humanity, which is a material world transfigured by holiness. And that's why we have relics, holy relics. There's no holy relics in Gnosticism because the holy because the material world is never redeemed, and um, that's why you know they they don't think of resurrection. We do. I just go on to uh, yes. 
this now implies, okay, how do we live? Well, if we we have the ideal of Christ who died for us, so therefore uh, we have this ideal of dying for each other and dying for Christ. So this is martyrdom. Ignatius is on his way to be eaten by wild animals. So he uh, is particularly sort of offended with the Gnostics who, whenever the Romans would come around, would just say, oh yeah, I'll, I'll sacrifice, you know, it does, because it doesn't matter, because Basilides again, he teaches that one should not undergo martyrdom, for the martyr will be found to have no reward, since his, he is not martyred for the one who made man, but for Simon, who was crucified. So where will his reward come from, seeing that he dies for the crucified Simon, but confesses that he's doing it for Christ, whom he does not know, and so dies for the one whom he does not know. One should therefore deny and not be in a hurry to die. Well, this is um, obviously the opposite. So because of this, this religion is all sort of intellectual, uh, you know, self-improvement thing. Well, you know, and, and, and things in this world don't matter. Well, then I don't have to, uh, I don't have to suffer. So suffering is, is not something good in Gnosticism. Well, that's what the church fathers said. They said that the, you know that they got a lot of converts because they were offering, uh, you know, essentially, uh, yeah, all kinds of things that uh, you know attract people that are that are that it was just uh, they saw it. Of course, and these individual teachers um, were attracting personal followers. I mean, they were existing within. Their pe- people often were attending the church, but they had the idea that the church, you know, was was for the the teachings of the church and everything was for the ignorant. But that you would go to the church, but you would know the true teachings from them alone, and then that they would be secret teachings. So, uh, you know, kind of like some people today actually they have that uh, in the church, you know, where they uh, but then say that well, but the church teachings are just the low level stuff and. You know, by following a particular person, you know, you're going to be at a much higher level than the rest of the churches. But this, um, it's a common thing. I mean, we, today also, we know the cult groups are kind of follow the same thing. Um, he, um, just a couple of things from Ignatius. The apostles touched Christ and believed in, in, in the gospel. For this cause, they also despised death and were found to be conquerors. But if these things were done by our Lord only in appearance, why have I surrendered myself to death? But he who is near the sword is near God. I undergo all these things that I may suffer together with him. That's his letter to the Smyrnians. And then in Trollians, um, but if some, but if as some say that are without God, that it is the unbelieving, that is the unbelieving, he became man in appearance only, that he, uh, that he died in appearance merely and did not in very deed suffer, then for what reason am I now going in bonds and long to be exposed to wild beasts? In such case I die, die in vain and am guilty of falsehood against the cross of the Lord. But as for me, I do not put my, do not place my hopes in one who died for me in appearance, but in reality. The other um, aspect of, of this is that if you, um, there's no body of Christ, so therefore that uh, sacrament in the church then is just bread and wine. There's nothing. There's, there's no because Christ was never a body. He never had a body. And so here he makes a, a big point of uh, the communion being the body and blood of Christ. And if you're a Baptist like I was, uh, 
you know, that comes as a bit of a shock because we're told, that, well, the well, New Testament, they didn't believe any of that. But here's someone living in the New Testament times who's saying, well, this is the distinctive belief of Christians, that this is the body and blood of Christ. So, um, for me, that was uh, very helpful. And kind of, what is it? I mean, if you look at uh, the other, I mean, the church history, I mean, every, basically, everyone believes it's the body and blood of Christ until you get down to uh, Reformation times. And even then, Martin Luther still believes it is. It's just... Uh, certain Protestants that now have become, uh, you know, successful in our country. The other aspect of, of the meaning of Christ's uh, suffering is the importance of charity. Uh, again, it's part of like morality. You know, because the material world matters, what you do in it matters. That's one of the things with India, you know, in the over there, you know, they have all the suffering, but they don't believe very much in charity because everything is just faded and it all doesn't matter anyway. So there's not, uh, in Indian religion, you know, much importance put on that. But in Christian religion, uh, that's seen as something significant. So we, uh, you know, go and help other people. And this is, uh, I'll read just from Ignatius. If they do not believe in the blood of Christ, they shall in consequence incur condemnation. Consider how opposed they are to the will of God. They have no regard for charity, no care for the widow or the orphan or the oppressed or the bound or the bound or the free, the hungry or the thirsty. And this is where Christ in the Gospels tells us this is, you know, when you come to the judgment day, where are you giving water to the thirsty? Where are you, you know, feeding the hungry? Where are you helping other people the things in this world? I mean but we say, well, but those are just material things. What do they matter? But is this is because the material world is the arena in which God has placed us to work out our salvation. It is actually uh, this is the divinely you know this is the divinely ordained universe where where good and bad are are uh, worked out. And so, in a Christian view, but because the, the Gnostics rejected all that, uh, reject the whole material world as as a creation of evil, they therefore have no um, you know, then almost everything happening in this world is meaningless. So again, it just it kind of intellectualizes everything in in their system. That's uh, just about six. But uh, this the one other aspect that he he talks about uh, church order. He talks about the importance of uh, bishops and you know and unity of the church and following the bishops. He tells us that uh, Eucharist should only be performed by the bishops or those people whom they authorize to perform, which was what we have now. That's why there's a Little thing on the altar that's got the bishop's signature on it. Um, yeah, uh, right. That you have to have, you have to have that to have a Eucharist because we're following what he's saying there. I mean, it's of course not just because he said it, but because that was the the whole tradition of the church is that that the church um, exists in this unity and focused on the bishops and the uh, distinction. You know, with the with the Gnostics was that they were <coughs> individual teachers were setting themselves up as, as authority above the church as a whole. The church, first, certainly above the church tradition, but above the uh, bishops and so on. So he is constantly telling people to, you know, look to the bishop. You know, stay united to the bishop and the priest um, because and and to maintain the unity of the church. Because we, and this is again, if you're a Protestant, you know, looking back, that's again surprising if you think that, well, it's just normal to have all these zillion denominations. 
obviously the early Christians at the time of the New Testament thought that that church unity was important. I mean, of course, you would get that from St. Paul as well. And he tells them not to have different factions. <clears throat> okay, uh, are there any questions at 6 o'clock? So I'll let you uh, go, or if you have something you want to say, go ahead and say it. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you.